If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Durimple. So, William, this is part two of an extraordinary life, right? A really extraordinary life. And, and oh, really? that's recorded in such detail and such sort of realism. You really feel you know this man, and yet he's telling a story which, while mm. incredibly common, and many lineaments of it taking place over 12 million lives, mm. is this is a sort of uniquely sharp-focused look at one of those. Exactly that. I mean, in, in his own words, which is what makes it so very immediate and so very human. And in, as he says, as you've just pointed out, you know, I believe there are a few events in my life which have not happened to many. And that figure of 12 million really resonates with that. This is just one story, one experience of the hell. And it's funny how in history this happens so often that you get, you know, a whole world which is silent, particularly if you're talking about people who are not in the top tier, who, who, who are not literate, who do not leave historical records. And then something happens to record one of those things, rather like a sort of Pompeii moment when suddenly a whole world is is frozen in aspic or frozen in love, mm-hmm. in the case of, of Pompeii, so preserving a world that otherwise would be completely lost. And and I feel this is, is a kind of very much an 18th century transatlantic slave trade version of that. And yet in another way, Equiano is, is a kind of unique character because he's so much himself he's, he's such he's, his own voice comes across so clearly and it's a very particular voice that mixture of piety wisdom mm. charm charm and also you know the 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 kind of rhetorical devices that that are familiar to those who read their bibles and that's going to become quite important in this mm. episode much more in this bit of the story yeah so let, i mean let's just remind you what what you've missed or, or or if you heard the podcast that went out on tuesday just just a quick refresher this is a a young boy who was taken from his village separated from his little sister all that he knew ripped apart from her thrown Onto, I mean, after being held at a, at a port for three months, just looking at this this ship that is going to be his great nightmare across the Middle Passage, chucked up and down in the air to to make sure that he was himself seaworthy. It's that particular image I, I think that particularly really resonates sticks. with you. you Don't you, you think? Landed on that two or three times. Well, it's just a tiny arms and legs flailing in the sky, you know, just to see whether you know you're. It, it's waiting a human life, and then, but what he does. On, on this voyage is he learns. He learns very quickly on a, on a series of voyages, makes friends with a young boy who's only a couple of years older than him, a white boy called Richard, who actually, you know, whose own family owns slaves. But with the friendship of Richard, the tenacity of Richard, who sees the humanity in him, as Equiano says, he sort of looks at me in eyes where I see myself reflected as a, as a man although he's a child. You know, he, he learns to read a little bit. He learns to navigate a little bit. He learns after you know losing the terror of being cannibalized by these people who he thinks are demons you know with their long straight hair with their pale pale skins with nothing the languages that he doesn't understand when he suddenly comes to the realization that they're not going to eat him 
They're not going to kill him. And in fact, in certain pockets of this this terrible experience, there is still some humanity that informs his own humanity. This is the point. And this is where this story is so different, for example, to what Vincent Brown was telling us in Tacky's Revolt, in that uh, there it's very black and white. You know, there's Thistlewood, who is this this demonic, satanic figure who's devising hideous new tortures for the slaves and raping everybody he comes across. And you have Tacky and his fellow slaves who are heroically brave. And Mm. and in that sense, it's a very simple casting. What's interesting about the Equiano story is that he encounters all sorts of fuzzy boundaries. And you're right. He has this character who is who is friendly to him. You know, two boys making friends on a ship. It's something you completely understand. And yet, the boy's father owns slaves. When we last left you, so Equiano had been bought. He'd been sold to a man called Pascal. Pascal had delivered him unto a, a cousin who had had him baptized. But then he becomes involved in the Seven Years' War. And for you know, thirteen-year-olds, generally speaking, you know, they read books about warfare and they're terribly excited about the daring. Do he's living it? He's talking about French galleons coming up on the horizon. He's talking about cannons thundering, the smell of it, the sound of it, the feel of it, the reverberations of it. But he does firmly believe that after he has served so well during these battles with distinction yep. in, in the Seven Years War, and he, and he talks a lot about the praise that he gets from other captains for being so brave, that he is being accepted and he will be free. However, where we left you at the end of the last episode, once the Seven Years War were over, he sold again to a man called Captain James Doran. And that's where we left you last and this is, for him, clearly completely incomprehensible because he thinks he's part of the family. He's been invited home. The aunts have looked after him. Mm. And suddenly he's back on the market. Like, How could Pascal do this to him? Yeah. You know, there was a promise that had been made. And particularly, I think, once they forged, you know, they'd been in, in those ships together in a war. And so they were, you know, very much sort of, he thought himself as a comrade. And anyone who's seen those wonderful, uh, that wonderful Russell Crowe film, Master and Commander, or read the Patrick O'Brien novels, mm. which they're based on, knows that word of the camaraderie of those ships, despite the brutality and everything, and to then be just yeah. put on the market. I'll tell you, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting, and before, before we continue on with this story, it, is, it runs so contrary to so many of the relationships I've come across recently through journalism. So with the fall of Afghanistan, the people who were fighting the hardest to get their old translators out or their old fixers out, Afghans out, were British military personnel. And I took calls from members of British tough, tough old nuts, right? Very senior brass who were in tears, crying because they had made promises to people who had then been left behind. So for Pascal to do this, I mean, just just imagine that. Anyway, look, so let me start. Let me start with, with his own words of this this feeling of betrayal after having so much service so much to offer. He says this, he says, thus at the moment I expected my toils to end was I plunged, as I supposed, in a new slavery, in comparison of which all my service hitherto had been perfect freedom. So being in a war, being Mm -hmm. fired at, shot at, almost killed, that to him equates to being free. And now again, 
again he's sold to a new owner. And not only is he sold to a new person, he's back in the West Indies. Yes, he's he back is. in the Caribbean, which he spent his life escaping from. It's like this terrible snakes and ladders. Well, we should we should say how this happens. Yeah. So this is this is the new owner takes him back to the West Indies. And then he's he's bought by a new master. So he is so commodified at this point. He's bought by a man named Robert King, who's a well-connected merchant. He is actually very importantly a Quaker. Now, Quakers are really important. Now, tell us why, why Quakers stand apart, William. Why do Quakers stand apart when it comes to slavery? Well, the Quakers seem to connect the what seems to us today to be this blindingly obvious thing that Christianity, you'd have imagined, would not be pro-slavery. It's amazing, though, how many Catholics and Protestants did not see that. And it was the Quakers who are the first group, religious group, I think I'm right in saying, who really stand up against the slave trade and and make the connection that's so blindingly obvious to anyone today, that this is something that is absolutely abhorrent to the basic values of Christianity. These are fellow human beings. Right. And, And even at this point that Robert King, the Quaker, purchases this human being, his human 18 year old boy, Equiano, there is this protean abolitionism that's growing within the Quaker movement. They are absolutely the first, but somehow he swallows his principles as so many men of an inverted commas principle do at this time, and he buys this boy. But Equiano does say King treats him well. He, he enrolls him in education. He wants him to be a clerk. He sees in him, you know, this, he, he's unusual because he has letters. You know, he's all learned all this stuff from Richard Baker and others. He knows things. He knows science, rudimentary science. So he decides, he's, this, is a, this is the making, this is the clay I can mould to be a very good clerk for me. King, obviously, is, is a much more decent man. And again, mm. this is the shades of feeling and the, the different types of life a slave could lead that comes out in the in the Equiano book that you don't get in other accounts. It's it's not that there's there's just this one horrific plantation slavery. There are gradations here. And Equiano writes very warmly about King and the jobs mm. that he gives him and the opportunities that he presents him. But also there is a sort of, you know, psychodrama aspect to this because some slave owners believe the only way of holding on to their slaves was through sheer terror and the end of a whip. There is another that says, okay, you know what, if I treat mine well, but I, they always have the fear that I could sell them on, mm. they know they could go somewhere worse. And that's sort of the king mode of, of operating his slaves. He does, though take Equiano back to the West Indies. And this is the first time, remember, this is the first time he's, he's been taken from Africa. This is the first time he will see what plantation slavery is like. So, you know, we've we've talked about this a little bit, haven't we, um, William? Just remind everybody, the Vincent Brown episode, if they haven't heard it, it's a difficult listen, isn't it? I mean, we should really warn, if you're going to go back and listen to it, it's not easy. Worse than that, it's a horrific listen. It's stuff that we felt we had to lay out very clearly and, and openly, but it's not something I would recommend to anybody who's no. had a hard day's work and wants nice light rat relaxation. It's a very grim tale. Yeah, and, and Equiano will spare you none of this. So, you know, he devotes it in his narrative, his interesting narrative, a whole chapter of his book, talking about the absolute horror of what he saw. And and I think it's really interesting what he says actually. And he gives I think he gives people the benefit of the doubt. He's he's actually a very he's a very sweet man. Because this is the part of the problem is that these plantations, a lot of them, are owned by absentee landlords. And you've spoken mm. about this before. Members of parliament have plantations, William. Uh, the aristocracy have plantations. They're not going to spend much time in the sweaty West Indies, but they have people who do. So they don't understand 
what, or they don't care, or they're blind to deliberately, but they leave their management of their estates to what he calls these human butchers. And he sort of seems to suggest that a true British gentleman would not do this. And I think it's really interesting, you've said this before, that the amerta in Britain about slavery is part of the reason that it is allowed to continue in this way, William, because people are not getting these narratives. They're not hearing what's done. They're not hearing them. Yeah, they don't know this stuff. They don't, and they can, they can avoid thinking about it. It's, too, it's in another room. It's somewhere else. So what's interesting, I think, about Equiano is that he not only travels around freely trading for king, but in the same way that the East India Company allowed people to, to do deals on their own accounts, as well as doing the company's business, King allows Equiano to become a trader and a merchant on his own account. And he begins to make money, which again is very different from our view of, of slavery. We don't imagine a slave system where slaves have the capacity to, to enrich themselves. Well, I mean, I, I see, I always read that as he, rather than allowed it, he ignored the fact that Equiano was making some money on the side or he tolerated it. Maybe that again is like the East India Company model. That it's they, like, you know, you, if, you, if you want to keep them sweet, let them do it. So, you know, little bits here and there. Equiano starts to, you know, if he does a big trade, he keeps a little bit back and he does a private deal on the side. He makes contacts for his work, his trading for, for King. But he does a little side deal or a little, you know, a little hustle here and there. And he starts making some money and putting it away. And this is crucial for him. This is absolutely crucial. This is his ticket to freedom. He realizes that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's delightful, some of the things that he does. So he'll pick up. <laughs> I like this. Have you seen this uh, little detail? He picks up tumblers in one little area and he'll take them to another port and say, you know, do you want to, to buy? I mean, I'm imagining these tumblers, these copperware things or, you know, brassware cups and, and, and saucers. But then he moves on to the much more lucrative hustle of gin and fruit. And there's money in those things. I never thought gin was drunk in the West Indies. I always imagined this is sort of very much the rum drinking world. But uh, this is 18th century London taste, presumably. Yeah. Expats like their gin. I mean, they, you know, Hogarth, Hogarth knew a thing or two about these things. It is the days before tonic. You just drink gin neat, like vodka. Oh, gosh, someone has done a PhD on this. Did they drink? When did they start drinking gin? That's a brilliant, because gin, well, the tonic is quinine-based, isn't it? So quinine, so that's India, is it? Tonic is quinine, and it comes, it comes from India, and it's 19th century, I, I think. What were they drinking? So, you know, please write to us. And originally it's a health thing. To stop malaria. Well, and, it, and it's effective. And quinine still uses a, a, an anti-malarial. Yeah, do let us know when tonic was introduced. Anyway, so he's making money. He's speculating. Because all the time, he's sort of putting a little bit of money in his pocket, thinking, one day I'm going to buy my freedom. One day, this is going to get me the hell out of here. And he does show loyalty to, to King. It doesn't actually take very long. I mean, he's, yeah. he's 18 when he starts working for King. Yeah, and it's what 1766 after three years yeah. in King's service, and he's now amassed 47 pounds, which you could add which is many a fortune to, to him. Yeah, I mean the thing is, I mean, and he does have what I think is really interesting when he's working for King. He talks about in his book there are multiple times when he could have run away and he doesn't. So, so he's offered help to escape. So when he's in Guadeloupe, he meets some French sailors and they say, "Look, come with us. Come with us. We'll we'll help you out. We'll get you out of here." And he says, no, I'm staying. I'm sure somewhere in his mind too, though, he must be weighing it up because 
again, something that's very clear in this is that if you are a freed slave in the Caribbean, there is a huge danger that you're going to be re-enslaved by some brute who just takes you and, and, and shackles you, yeah. uh, that you're always living on your wits, never quite know when that moment may come when some some guy just sort of comes for you. Uh, and, and such was the brutality of the time. In the courts of the West Indies, a slave or a black man's witness was not accepted as valid at this point. So if you were if you were seized and re-enslaved, you know the fact that you said no, I you know I, I was I was freed almost certainly will not count in your favour. Yeah, I just I just one other tickly fact before we get on to him actually in in seventeen sixty six as you said, um, you know this 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 important figure of forty seven pounds mm. he's, he's got. But just before that, he meets a fortune teller, and this fortune teller that story this. says if he survives two instances of great peril, Equiano will not be a slave for much longer. And I don't know whether this is to the power of suggestion, but he gets really sick almost immediately, like really, really unwell. He survives that. And then he ne- nearly gets beaten to death by a barbaric drunk. And that really was very, very serious. Bedbound. There's nothing psycho, uh, you know, somatic about this. He's, he's bedbound for three weeks, but he survives it. And now he's convinced he is going to be free. That little episode, again, is, is a measure of the brutality of that world, that you could just be walking along doing your trading business and some drunk just puts you into bed for three weeks. With, yep. you know, with impunity, because no one's, you know, no one's going to punish him, particularly if he's a different colour, if he's white. No one's going to. You are entitled to beat your slaves. That's okay. Yep. Even So anyway, look what happens after he survived these two. He's got £47 in his pocket, William. He's, he's got a nice friendship with the captain who he's been working with because he's always very helpful to the captains he works for. What happens after that? So the captain vouches for his honesty and that he's amassed this money legally and says that he should be able to have his freedom. And so and he talks about, you know, actually going to approach King and saying, look, I've got this money, Mr. Quaker. And, and he puts it this way. I, who had been a slave in the morning, trembling at the will of another, was become my own master and completely free. Because after a bit of hesitation, King says, you know what, if you can pay me, I will set you free. I mean, see, even that's, you know, all yeah. this service, loyalty, everything else, but you pay me, I will set you free. So he's 21 years old and Equiano is free. And he's, he, he's amassed 47 pounds and King takes 40 of them as his fee for, for, for freeing him. Which is, I think, what was paid for him. It's a bit despicable, no? So, yeah, does he, he talks about how, how it makes him feel, William. And as you can imagine, how would you feel? And, of course, the first thing he wants to do is go back to England. And despite the fact that his old master, Pascal, has, has sold him, he wants to go back to Pascal's family, which, again, is the sort of tragic bit of this story. I mean, because Pascal's family were kind to him. You know, these were the, the, the Garens who were very sweet to him and, you know, baptised him. He works, even though he's free, actually, before he goes back to Pascal, he still works for King's ships a little bit longer, but as a free man, and he's getting a a proper wage. But it is a weird situation. And and now, now that he's a free man, he doesn't feel loyal to King at all, where he did maybe before, because he had to. Can you remember in our um, Merry Beard episode, the the Roman story, this again was was the norm in, in the Roman time, where people would often free their slaves, but they would continue working for them as staff rather than as slaves. And so it's that kind of model. Well, while, while he's working on, on King's ship as a, as a free man, there's a slave, he's confronted by another slave who insults him and hits him. This is another slave. And Equiano completely loses it. 
because now he's not a slave. He's better than that. And I think it's, he doesn't, he writes with, without the usual sense of introspection that normally he has about things, but he just, he loses it and he fights back. And the slave's master comes to the boat and demands to know that he should be flogged. Even though Equion is a free man, he should be flogged in the street for hurting his property. You know, being a free man, you know, it, it, it should have been okay. But his companions say, listen, you're not okay. You've got to hide from this man because he's got the authorities and they don't care if you're free or not because you are a black man. And if he gets his hands on you, it doesn't matter that you're a free black man, you will be flogged on the streets. And that, again, teaches him something about, you know, the, the value of freedom. It is precious and it is fragile. And as you've said before, you can be taken away by anybody who wants to kidnap you and sell you again. As a reader, I think this moment is very interesting because it's such an honest description. You know, he doesn't gloss himself over. He doesn't uh, pretend he didn't fight this guy. And, and there's this, again, this difference of status. The other guy is a slave. He is not. But the, the, uh, but the slave owner is the one with the power and it's only because he's hurt his property. Yeah. He's basically dinged his car. And he wants recompense. And the recompense usually could be financial, it could be anything else. But in this case, he wants the black man flogged. Anyway, he's still working. I think this is all the souring of the, the king relationship that happens. Uh, he's seen a, a mulatto on the ship. He talks about this. Now, a mulatto is, is, is a person of mixed heritage. You know, normally the child of a white overseer or a white plantation owner who often rapes the women in his charge. But this mulatto is, is carried away from the vessel and sold into slavery. And this again and again, he's reminded, and in his words, you know, how he lives on the edge of captivity, he says again and again, they live in constant alarm for their liberty. The West Indies is a terrible place for a black man, and he decides he's getting the hell out of there. He's not staying there anymore. So he moves back to London. Shall we have a break and find out what happens when he gets to London? I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So, William, young Equiano has had enough of the West Indies. He's taken the voyage back. But he finds he can't board a ship, even though he's free, he's bought his freedom. He can't board a ship without advertising himself and getting a, a white man to vouchsafe for him. It is degrading for him. He talks about how degrading it is that, you know, he has worked, he has scrimped, he has saved, he's bought his freedom, but he still cannot exist unless there is a white man leading him up the gangplank or leading him to the wages office. King wishes him well and says, and this is really very peculiar, but interesting. He says, I do not doubt that you'll prosper. And he also says he doesn't doubt that soon he'll have slaves of his own, because that is the mark of prosperity in England at that time. I do think that's bizarre. I think that is what the, is of the time. I think that is what is the reality of the time. But to say to a black man, you're going to own slaves of your own and that'll make you a success. Only I'm not saying this is this is a good thing to say, but I'm saying this is a uh, this is the world that they're living in. And yes, as we know, black men did own slaves. Yeah, I, I just don't. I'm just thinking of Francis Barber, who we've also talked about in this series. Just imagining him saying, you know, I'm going to own slaves. I just, I mean, it just to me, if you've experienced, I, I think it's bizarre to us, but I don't think it would have been bizarre at the time. I agree with you that it's a very sort of chilling and clashing statement for our sensibilities. But I think this, I think this is woven into every aspect of life at the time. And I don't think it would have been surprising. All right. Okay. I just, I think, you know, I, looking into the eyes of a man who's been a slave and saying you're alone slaves, I just don't know how people didn't catch fire. It's just bonkers. To me, there's some like, hum, there must be some corpuscular level where you know that is a really crappy thing to say. Anyway, he doesn't mean it in a crappy way. Okay, this is the, I, I mean, just think of the, of our episode with Vincent Brown, when who are the people who are defeating Tacky? It's not the white militias, it's the mulattoes. Yeah, you're right. Yes, because they have a deal. Yeah, then there are these there are these these hierarchies. So anyway, he's in London, William, and he goes to see his old family, the Garens. What happens? And they're pleased to see him. Um, I mean, again, what you know, this is so bizarre because we know that Pascal, the cousin, sold him into slavery, and yet the Garens are thrilled to see him, welcome him into their house like a lost son. They get him an apprenticeship. They get him lodging at a hairdresser's. He starts night school in arithmetic, further education, and the detail I particularly like, he <laughs> learns the French horn. I do like that. that it's, a re it's a really difficult instrument to play. Have you ever tried to play the French horn? I used to play it. I am grade four no. on the French horn, I'll have you know. Is that true? <laughs> and the trumpet, it is true. <laughs> How good are you? I think I'm learning I was no things. Good. I was never any good at it, but I worked quite hard at it, and despite having absolutely no talent for it, I, did, I, okay. I played in an orchestra. Can I just say, I'm utterly charmed. And how many other secrets do you have that I do not? So with the French horn, right? I can still play a bit of Mozart's horn concerto. Really? But I mean, did you do? You can do that. Yeah. That's your next party trick, mate. You're not coming around here without a French horn again. Listen, but isn't it true you have to sort of stick your? So sorry if you're not interested in this. Just spool forward twenty seconds. But I'm just fascinated. The French horn is the most bizarre thing because don't you have to stick your arm in it? 
to make it change. You that. stick your hand or cup your hand <laughs> on the edge of the uh, on the edge of the the horn. Uh, but if you want to mute it, you shove it in, yeah, and you get that kind of muted sound. Uh, I mean, not mute, not mute in the in the sense of a, a Zoom call where it, where it goes completely silent, like so many of our recordings. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like that. But, uh, mute in the sense of that that sort of bap, 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 that very yeah. particular sound. I've never been doing French horn imitations. No, no, it's just, you, you, can you bring it next time? I mean, listen, Alistair Campbell does the bloody bagpipes all the time. I'm not going to play the French horn imitations since <laughs> no, no, I was 16. But, think, uh, think of the ratings, mate. I think you're being very selfish. But my friend Ian Dowsett used to play. <clears throat> Sorry, we're going to get back to it in a minute, but I just think this is, it is genuinely the weirdest this instrument. <laughs> not, not very far. It's, uh, Ian Dowsett used to play, it, and I remember when he used to plunge his arm into it, and I used to always, in my head, fantasise, that he would pull out a piccolo because it was having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> on, that, on that slightly bizarre all. note, so back we, to slavery in 18th century London. I just want you to a little insight into how my brain works. So, Anita, what I'd love you to do is to paint a little portrait of 18th century London. What was the position of a former slave, a freed slave in London. What right. is, and this is not Victorian London. This is not the the huge megalopolis at the centre of the British Empire. This is 1700. We can sometimes forget how small Britain was in 1700. I was yeah. just reading uh, one of Linda Coley's books and uh, she has this extraordinary statistic that at 1700, the British army was smaller than the army of the King of Sardinia. Wow. 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 And we always do this thing in our heads of reflecting Victorian, powerful, world-conquering Britain back onto small, fragile 18th century Britain, particularly 1700. Britain hasn't got the money coming in from the from India yet on a large scale. It's only just getting uh, the, the transatlantic slave trade going. And it's a, a quite a small, quite a poor place. Gosh, well, you're right, and it, but it's it's a place in in flux. Yeah, it's just in that moment of transition. Just about to, you know, like popcorn is just about to go off in a pan. It, it's like that. So, I mean, I think you can you can legitimately describe it as the first burgeoning European metropolis because in 1700 the population was about half a million. This is just to give you an idea. By 1800, it was over one million. Very teeny tiny black population maybe a few thousand concentrated in areas like Shadwell and Wapping, sort of around those port areas. What's bizarre to us, this very unclear status of slavery in Britain. Some people believe that slavery is illegal in Britain. Then a law is published clarifying that technically it's not. So this black population, most of whom are freed, but some of whom are not, uh, are living in this sort of legal ambiguity. Yeah. It is also, London is, is is filthy. I can't stress this enough at this time. It is a stinky, stinky place. If you if you read any of the literature at the time, you will know open sewers. We're talking horses and carriages, so horse manure everywhere. There is not, you know, this is a city untroubled by the public toilet. What uh, date is Gin Alley and, and Hogarth? That's 1780s? That sounds that about sort right. sort of time. So this is pre-Gin Alley, but heading into that world. So, so if you if you don't know Hogarth, he does this this wonderful thing. It's about the terrible fate that befalls people who drink gin, and they're just mountains of dissolute, drunk people, women with their breasts exposed, but their children tumbling to the ground because they have a bottle of gin in in their hands. But you know, this is a rotting place. There's food, rotting animals, sweat, urine. This is where he is free. But even if this is a stinking rotten place. It is still a place of freedom. You know, every breath that he takes is his own breath, even though there is this ambiguity. And he starts to think, you know what? I can make myself anew. 
This is, I am a new man now. He's still, you know, 21, 22. He's got the whole life ahead of him. So he decides, with London as his backdrop, I am going to be a gentleman. And this takes him bizarrely back to the sea of his slavery. William, tell us a little bit about that. What does he do? Well, he becomes a merchant adventurer and he goes to all sorts of places. He visits Smyrna, which we had in our Ottoman series where we we had the destruction of Smyrna. But in his period, this is a, 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 a extremely wealthy Ottoman port. Yeah, lined with pomegranate trees. Very beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says that the grapes and the fruits he had there were the richest and largest he ever tasted. So you just see this guy, he's 21, he's traveling the world. It's stunning for him probably to go to Smyrna as it would be for any of us to go on our, you know, our year off or whatever, you know, our gap year. So you have this guy, 21, setting himself up now as a merchant, traveling the Mediterranean, having, having a good time. Mm. This is a very, very different world to the one he's been used to. Last time he was in the Mediterranean, he was a slave in the middle of the Seven Years' War. And now he's a free man traveling on his own account, trading. Trading, buying fruit to sell. I mean, some things never do change, though, William. And even though he is, you know, a legitimate merchant, it is it is hard as hell to get people to pay him. They They just don't pay him on time. So then we've got uh, this very sort of uh, life-affirming trip to the Arctic. And I think this is one of the things that makes his story so very, very popular. Because it really does read it's a like a adventure story. A, yeah, you know, like those, exactly. are, you know, those bits of Mary Shelley when he's going back over the snow plains to meet the monster. It reads a lot like that, you know, with his landscaping and the way he feels and you know what it does. I, the more I read his book, the more you become convinced that he has read a lot of 18th century novels because the the whole way that he paces things, the narrative that he tells, I mean, the early parts of the book, particularly the ups and downs, these great sort of moments of, of, of hope and then the hope is dashed. But this is, you know, this is from a different end of 18th century literature. This, as you say, is, is you know, the world of adventure stories and travel books. Mm. Uh, and I think Equiano has read a lot of this. He's, he's become a very literate man mm. now. Yeah, and, and, and some of his descriptions are, are gorgeous. You know, he talks about going to Greenland where he's really horrified and slightly perturbed that the sun never sets. Uh, he sees, you know, very high, curious mountains of ice, which are icebergs. He talks about large whales passing by. He's kind of living his best life until the ship starts to get stuck in a Shackletonian way in the ice. The ice starts sort of building up around his ship and they are stuck. And it's very well told. It's a very mm. well told story. So they, they, they pick the boat up and they move it across the ice. They drag it. They do. He talks about the sea sort of turning into like a pond around him. It shrinks. Only the water is only, only so wide. And so that's what they do. He is, because of this, this narrative, the first black man to record a voyage to the Arctic. Extraordinary. I mean, he's so, there's so many firsts in, in his life. And then we begin to get more of a sense of his growing commitment to Christianity. This is all part of a world that he has taken on in London. And he is looking for his Christian faith. He's already baptized. But there's also, along with that, a sort of a, a sort of spiritual struggle. And he's, he's often dejected, convinced of his own sin, 
and all there's that whole sort of religious tussle, which again is very much of its time. I think. And I love the fact that he yeah. starts inter- interviewing religions because he he wants to find God. He's lost contact, so he talks to Quakers. They don't really rock his world. Uh, Roman Catholics, no, that's not doing it for him. Chats to Jewish people could even you know be Jewish, but no, that's not also appealing to him. So he ends up going to the house of an elderly man and talking to him about Christianity. And in due course, he is invited to, in his words, a love feast. So this, I think, is what in the letter St. Paul is called agape. And again, this is part of this sort of 18th century, new forms of Christianity, Methodism is, is happening in the North, and all sorts of strange new versions of Christianity growing in the incubator of London uh, with people mixing ideas. And he's there, an outsider, looking in, wondering which version he will take on. It speaks to him, really does. And he also starts identifying himself now as being British. He needs this, you know, if you're going to if you're going to make a man, then you need a foundation. And his two foundations are British and Christian. And he says, I earlier accustomed myself for looking for the hand of God in the minutest occurrence and to learn from it a lesson of morality and religion. And in this light, every circumstance I've related was to me of importance. So everything then reconfirms. From this point on, he has the message, and it is the message of Christianity. And yet, despite this Christianity, he considers himself entering the plantation business. Again, you know what you said about King saying that you will, you may own slaves yourself. Equiano does consider this for for a moment in his life. I know it's. I mean, it's just awful. And so, yes, I mean, you. you it, it proves you right, but it also, to me. It makes me wonder about this this mysticism of prophecy, you know, that he was going to get sick twice and he was going to get better. And then King tells him, you will own, you know, he believes that people foresee things in his life. Anyway, he does have this madcap idea that he's going to run a slave plantation in Jamaica. He's going to be in charge of it. It is actually really appalling, that, but he's honest about it. That again, you know, that's honest about it. He is honest about it. I think that's and one of the reasons that this this narrative is is so strong is that he doesn't hide the things that reflect badly on him. Although he's yeah. when he's writing this, he's an abolitionist who's made his name going around the country speaking about the inhumanity of slavery. He does not edit out, as it could have been mm. very easy for him to do, the fact that he did go back to Jamaica uh, and considered this business. Then, as if to remind him, as if the, the if you are a religious person, the good hand of the Lord reminds you that this is not how you treat people. On his way back from Jamaica, something happens, William. Something extraordinary happens to him. There's this moment when he's effectively recaptured and threatened with uh, enslavement yet again in this continual sort of uh, boomerang that he does with fate. And, of course, he's a freeman. He obviously resists this. And in the end, he talks his way out gift of, of it. The gab. Mm-hmm. Gift of the gab. Gift of the gab. And he convinces mm-hmm. the captain of his credentials and his contacts, and he's freed. Although, when the, the, the person who's captured him finds out that he has, in inverted commas, escaped, even though the captain is the one who set him free, he goes to shoot him with a musket. And, you know, it is just by intervention that that doesn't kill him there and then. You know, he's, he's convinced the captain that he's not a slave, but he could still die the death of an escaped slave. He's 30 years old at this point. I, I have to say, it's bonkers to, to me. I mean, I'm more surprised that he went back to the Caribbean with the risks that that involved mm. than that he got involved 
potentially in the slave trade because because it he he makes a very clear picture of london being a better place for a, obviously for a black man than the west indies that is the most precarious and dangerous place possible to be black but where else is he going to make money smyrna i mean there's lots of other i mean the, the british empire is, is a wide ranging mm. thing at this point he you know mm. he can he has been trading in the mediterranean there's no need for him to go back to yeah. The West Indies, but that is where money is made, and you're right. That yeah. I'm sure that is the motive. He he realizes that he cannot be fully free unless he's rich, so he runs the risk of reenslavement and and all the horrors of the Caribbean. There is another really horrible episode that sort of takes place, and you know he talks about his stumbling around as well. So he returns to London, and then like, he's not going to make the same mistake again. And there is this really interesting um, chapter, which I hope to go into more detail in when we do a later podcast. But he becomes involved. There are a lot of black soldiers who fought on the side of the British in the Civil War. And they have been dumped in the middle of London. They think they're going to be free. They think they're going to be set up for life, but they actually are left sort of starving and hungry uh, on the quayside. And he becomes involved in this. It is actually quite a racist venture to ship them off to Sierra Leone. And it is a disastrous venture. He becomes he becomes the man, the poster boy for doing this. So he talks to these former black soldiers and he says, look, you, you're going to go back. We're going to lay on a ship. They are held in like camps for months before this ship takes off. So many of them die in the camps because these are riven with terrible diseases. The ships are riven with terrible diseases. The population is utterly decimated before they get to Sierra Leone. And it teaches them a lesson that these plans that don't come from a good heart do not work. And so he repudiates them entirely. So after this, when Equiano comes back to London again, he now settles much more permanently. And this is the point that we find him committing himself and taking on the cause of abolition. Totally. And we spoke in the Royal African Company episodes as how there was very little resistance to the slave trade. Equiano becomes the resistance. And so this is in the 1770s. And it's important to say what's going on in the 1770s that really puts fuel in his fire, that he becomes this firebrand pamphleteer. He writes articles in newspapers. He starts speaking from pulpits about how degrading, awful, and unchristian slavery is. So in 1772, you've got the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Mansfield, ruling that slavery was not legal in England. It's a very, very important date. And this is a crucial moment, isn't it? This is the first time that you actually have a senior court in Britain ruling that this ambiguity that existed, is it legal, is it not? He says, within England, it is not legal. 1772, crucial date. Yeah, okay. 1781, the Zong massacre takes place, where a captain throws 130 slaves overboard because the, the ship was low on drinking water. And then tries to claim their lives on insurance. And typically for this story, that's the moment that, that this is exposed, not when it happens, but when he tries to claim the insurance on it. 1783, an anti-slavery movement begins among the British public. Uh, starts to get an outcry that, you know, slavery must end through the British Empire. And then in 1787, the Committee for the Abolition of the Slave Trade is formed and William Wilberforce, who we're going to home in on very closely in 
other episodes. Mm. This politician, this philanthropist, begins his parliamentary campaign from a very religious perspective. So again, this is something that Equiano can can embrace. Uh, and Equiano becomes the, the, the key voice in this abolition movement. He does. I mean, he really is, uh, and, and he has such high contacts. By now, you know, people want to be his friend. They want to be seen by him. He has subscribers to the book. You remember we said in the first um, instance, when he first wrote his book, he kept the copyright. But subscribers, who are the people who support these publications, were very senior people within the royal family and also aristocracy. He's the one who says to the king, he writes a petition for ending slavery, and, and these are the words. He presents it himself to Queen Anne and says, I supplicate your majesty's compassion for millions who groan under the lash of tyranny in the West Indies. He says, but is not the slave trade entirely at war with the heart of man? He is, he is the, I mean, he's not the only black person in the British abolitionist movement, but he is the man in the abolitionist movement. Anita, do you have any sense of what changed between that moment five, six years earlier in the 1770s when he's thinking of going back to Jamaica and running a plantation and the early 1780s when he's now become this this abolitionist because that is, is is a mystery to me in this account well i think i think one of the things and we we know we very lightly touched on it but it's this way of he's trying to be the good son to the to great britain they ask him to help with this this repatriation and they they sell it you know freetown is going to be a place for freed slaves and free black people actually the motivation is there are too many poor black people cluttering up the streets of london and he becomes involved in this and then he sees what happens where this cohort of people whose faces he knows, whose eyes he can look into, die in hideous ways, and the whole thing is a lie. And I think that really, for me anyway, I think that's I think that breaks him. I do. That's a coherent motive, isn't it? I mean, that makes human sense to. Yeah, but I mean, just just I mean, the Sons of Africa. Talk a little bit about the Sons of Africa, and then we're we're coming to the end of this extraordinary story because if you have heard of Equiano's name, you know how important he was, and his narrative was to the abolitionist cause. But tell us about the Sons of Africa. And the Sons of Africa is this very kind of modern movement. It's it's the first black lobbying group in Britain, and they push the interests of the black community in public and in Parliament, and they perhaps surprisingly come immediately to the forefront. Of the of the abolition movement, they are the poster boys, uh, but they're also they have um, agency. That they're, they're running their own show. They are coordinating. They're organised. They have they have a movement, and Equiano is right there in the middle of it. And it is against this backdrop of his greatly amplifying voice, where he's getting friends in high places, where he's able to hand a petition to Queen Anne, and and also you know the other thing I think that's going hand in hand with this is the spread of a, a British press, a British press that needs stuff and interesting stories to fill its pages and he is an interesting story. I was very surprised when I was researching my East India Company books how liberal the British press could be at this time. They oppose the atrocities of empire consistently or many of the papers do and there are many headlines in 18th century newspapers that read like you know a Guardian headline today and there are times when you're dealing with this period when it feels utterly foreign. You know, the way, for example, in the early 18th century that no one is talking about the immorality of the slave trade. And you wonder, you know, whether you're dealing with people that are remotely like ourselves. And then you have these other moments in the abolition movement when the press 
you know, backs it very volubly mm-hmm. and speaks in very modern terms about uh, how all people are equal, how different races have just different skin colours, and using using very much the language we might use today. You're absolutely right. It does feel contemporary. It's against that kind of changing environment. And I think the free press has so much to do with, with, with this change that he brings out his book. And the book, I mean, we're talking about the book released in 1789. Some people can get their hands on the book before it's published. And remember, he holds on to the copyrights so all of the money forever in perpetuity will go to him. Very clever businessman. But his subscriptions include the Prince of Wales, an aristocracy, members of parliament, leading members of the church. And so that in itself is this virtuous circle. They want to be identified with him and others then when they see that these are the subscribers want to buy his book. And the book, the whole reason of the book is the abolitionist cause. It starts with this letter. The chief design of this book is to excite in your august assemblies a sense of compassion for the miseries which the slave traders entailed on my unfortunate countrymen. Satnam Sagera in his Empire Land talks about changing sensibilities today and, and says how in our generation we suddenly realised that zoos were not great places, that, that, that things that previous generations were perfectly happy to see animals in cages wandering back and forth. And suddenly there's a ch- slight invisible change in the sensibility and suddenly everyone realizes these can be very cruel and, and horrible places. And this happens in, in London in the 1780s. Suddenly the penny drops, having not dropped at all in the early part of the mm. century. Suddenly everyone realizes that this appalling trade, this horrific trade, is is something that is is unacceptable and must be stopped, and you'd suddenly find the planters on the back foot and their interest mm-hmm. fighting public opinion, which is which is increasingly voluble, often from a religious with religious language. Yeah, you, you have you have people saying, "I've always thought it was terrible. <laughs> I never agreed <laughs> with this. I was the one who." Fa- so you know, look, this this is this is what happens. Look, we should just have a couple of moments for the end of his life, okay. He goes on to marry a white woman called Susanna Cullen, and they have two daughters. They only stay married for about four years before Susanna dies, which is a very sad thing. Um, but you know, he he leaves to his daughters a healthy estate. He has fortunes from his book sales. And his book tours. Again, it's a very modern life. You and I know that world. He had the largest crowds that we've managed on some of our book tours. (laughs) Absolutely. So anyway, look, that is the story of of an extraordinary man. And even though this is a a book that was written in the 1700s, published in the 1700s, it stands up today just as an adventure story. It's amazing. No question. As as a literary work. And I know many of you go uh, straight to your bookshop and, and buy books we've been talking about on this on this podcast get Equiano's autobiography because it, really uh, it, it immediately brings you to this world with all its great shades of great all its complexities and its horrors yeah. uh, and its moments of, of of triumph this whole story of the abolition movement is is a very wonderful story and, and it is rather like suddenly you know the end of apartheid or something suddenly something evil is ended and uh, and there's this brief moment of optimism. Well, I mean, look, I, I, we could go on. The reason we're not going to go on is because I can see, Olive, your wife in the background is going to yank you off with one of those shepherd's crooks. You've got a flight to catch. I have. I'm off, I'm off on a book tour. I'm off to I on a book tour. You need to get a little wriggle on, my friend. We really could talk about this more. And if you've got questions, we're going to do a Q&A episode. And I'm sure, you know, we, it, it's such an extraordinary long story and a, and, a, and a wonderful textured life. Ask us. We'd love to talk about this again. Anyway, till the next time, it is goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durimple.